You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. This is a special episode. My my book is coming out, Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. It's a fun, crazy, dark comedy of a nonfiction book about my adventures over the years with the gentlemen who really believe they can rise above the rest of us and either become pure consciousness (laughs) divorced from matter or wealthy platform monopoly titans who rule the planet from behind their uh, virtual reality screens, um, and most of all, people who believe that they can somehow escape the disaster of their own making. It's, it's, it's weird. It's not an anti-technology book at, at all, honestly, really. I still believe that these devices, the things I'm using right now, they are amazing. They do wonderful, wonderful things. But the real world is coming apart. And the people who make these screens and devices, they not only know they're the cause, but they mean to escape the coming catastrophes. They think that our last best hope is to double down and apply even more technocratic and totalizing solutions to our problems. They think of humanity as a problem to solve rather than a living collective to nourish and foster. But anyway, I thought a fun thing to do this week as a celebration of of the book and as a a free gift to all of our Team Human listeners, subscribers and non-subscribers alike, would be to play for you an excerpt from the audio book. I don't know if I have permission. Am I going to get in trouble? Well, whatever. And see them coming after an author. And it's a promotion, right? Um, it's promotion for this beautiful audiobook from Recorded Books that you can get at all the kinds of places you you download um, audiobooks. And the book itself um, you can get. So this is all good. It's all promotion. Everyone will love it. So here's an excerpt. I guess let's do the introduction and first chapter of the book and, and see what happens. All right? All right. See you next week. Introduction. Meet the Mindset I got invited to a super deluxe resort to deliver a speech to what I assumed would be a hundred or so investment bankers. It was by far the largest fee I'd ever been offered for a talk, about a third of my annual salary as a professor at a public college, all to deliver some insight on the future of technology. As a humanist who writes about the impact of digital technology on our lives, I'm often mistaken for a futurist, and I've never really liked talking about the future, especially for wealthy people. The Q&A sessions always end up more like parlor games, where I'm asked to opine on the latest technology buzzwords as if they were ticker symbols on a stock exchange. AI, VR, CRISPR. The audiences are rarely interested in learning about how these technologies work or their impact on society beyond the binary choice of whether or not to invest in them. But money talks, and so do I, so I took the gig. I flew business class. They gave me noise-canceling headphones to wear and warmed mixed nuts to eat. Yes, they heat the nuts. 
as I composed a lecture on my MacBook about how digital businesses could foster circular economic principles rather than doubling down on extractive growth-based capitalism. Painfully aware that neither the ethical value of my words nor the carbon offsets I had purchased along with my ticket could possibly compensate for the environmental damage I was doing. I was funding my mortgage and my daughter's college savings plan at the expense of the people and places down below. A limo was waiting for me at the airport and took me straight out into the high desert. I tried to make conversation with the driver about the UFO cults that operate in that part of the country and the desolate beauty of the terrain compared with the frenzy of New York. I suppose I felt an urge to make sure he understood I'm not of the class of people who usually sit in the back of a limo like this. As if to make the opposite point about himself, he finally disclosed that he wasn't a full-time driver, but a day trader a bit down on his luck after a few poorly timed puts. As the sun began to dip over the horizon, I realized I'd been in the car for three hours. What sort of wealthy hedge fund types would drive this far from the airport for a conference? Then I saw it. On a parallel path next to the highway, as if racing against us, a small jet was coming in for a landing on a private airfield. Of course. Just over the next bluff was the most luxurious yet isolated place I've ever been. A resort and spa in the middle of, well, nowhere. A scattering of modern stone and glass structures were nestled into a big rock formation, looking out on the infinity of the desert. I saw no one but attendants as I checked in, and had to use a map to find my way to my private pavilion for the night. I had my own outdoor hot tub. The next morning, two men in matching Patagonia fleece came for me in a golf cart and conveyed me through rocks and underbrush to a meeting hall. They left me to drink coffee and prepare in what I figured was serving as my green room. But instead of me being wired with a microphone or taken to a stage, my audience was brought in to me. They sat around the table and introduced themselves. Five super wealthy white guys, yes, all men, from the upper echelon of the tech investing and hedge fund world. At least two of them were billionaires. After a bit of small talk, I realized they had no interest in the talk I'd prepared about the future of technology. They'd come to ask questions. They started out innocuously and predictably enough. Bitcoin or Ethereum? Virtual reality or augmented reality? Who will get quantum computing first, China or Google? But they didn't seem to be taking it in. No sooner would I begin to explain the merits of proof-of-stake versus proof-of-work blockchains than they would move on to the next question. I started to feel like they were testing me, not my knowledge so much as my scruples. Eventually, they edged into their real topic of concern. New Zealand or Alaska? Which region will be less impacted by the coming climate crisis? It only got worse from there. Which was the greater threat, climate change or biological warfare? How long should one plan to be able to survive with no outside help? Should a shelter have its own air supply? What is the likelihood of groundwater contamination? Finally, the CEO of a brokerage house explained that he had nearly completed building his own underground bunker system and asked, how do I maintain authority over my security force after the event? The event. 
That was their euphemism for the environmental collapse, social unrest, nuclear explosion, solar storm, unstoppable virus, or malicious computer hack that takes everything down. This single question occupied us for the rest of the hour. They knew armed guards would be required to protect their compounds from raiders as well as angry mobs. One had already secured a dozen Navy SEALs to make their way to his compound if he gave them the right cue. But how would he pay his guards once even his crypto was worthless? What would stop the guards from eventually choosing their own leader? The billionaires considered using special combination locks on the food supply that only they knew, or making guards wear disciplinary collars of some kind in return for their survival. Or maybe building robots to serve as guards and workers, if that technology could be developed in time. I tried to reason with them. I made pro-social arguments for partnership and solidarity as the best approaches to our collective long-term challenges. The way to get your guards to exhibit loyalty in the future is to treat them like friends now, I explained. Don't just invest in ammo and electric fences. Invest in people and relationships. They rolled their eyes at what must have sounded to them like hippie philosophy. So I cheekily suggested that the way to make sure your head of security doesn't slit your throat tomorrow is to pay for his daughter's bat mitzvah today. They laughed. At least they were getting their money's worth in entertainment. I could tell they were also a bit annoyed. I wasn't taking them seriously enough. But how could I? This was probably the wealthiest, most powerful group I had ever encountered. Yet here they were, asking a Marxist media theorist for advice on where and how to configure their doomsday bunkers. That's when it hit me. At least as far as these gentlemen were concerned, this was a talk about the future of technology. Taking their cue from Tesla founder Elon Musk colonizing Mars, Palantir's Peter Thiel reversing the aging process, or artificial intelligence developers Sam Altman and Ray Kurzweil uploading their minds into supercomputers, they were preparing for a digital future that had less to do with making the world a better place than it did with transcending the human condition altogether. Their extreme wealth and privilege served only to make them obsessed with insulating themselves from the very real and present danger of climate change, Rising sea levels, mass migrations, global pandemics, nativist panic, and resource depletion. For them, the future of technology is only about one thing, escape from the rest of us. These people once showered the world with madly optimistic business plans for how technology might benefit human society. Now, they've reduced technological progress to a video game that one of them wins by finding the escape hatch. Will it be Bezos migrating to space, Teal to his New Zealand compound, or Zuckerberg to his virtual metaverse? And these catastrophizing billionaires are the presumptive winners of the digital economy, the supposed champions of the survival of the fittest business landscape that's fueling most of this speculation to begin with. Of course, it wasn't always this way. There was a brief moment in the early 1990s when the digital future felt open-ended. In spite of its origins in military cryptography and defense networking, digital technology had become a playground for the counterculture, who saw in it the opportunity to invent a more inclusive, distributed, and participatory future. 
Indeed, the digital renaissance, as I began to call it back in 1991, was about the unbridled potential of the collective human imagination. It spanned everything from chaos math and quantum physics to fantasy role-playing. Many of us in that early cyberpunk era believed that, connected and coordinated as never before, human beings could create any future we imagined. We read magazines called Reality Hackers, Fringeware, and Mondo 2000, which equated cyberspace with psychedelics, computer hacking with conscious evolution, and online networking with massive electronic dance music parties called raves. The artificial boundaries of linear, cause-and-effect reality and top-down classifications would be superseded by a fractal of emerging interdependencies. Chaos was not random, but rhythmic. We would stop seeing the ocean through the cartographer's grid of latitude and longitude lines, but in the underlying patterns of the water's waves. Surf's up, I announced in my first book on digital culture. No one took us very seriously. That book was actually canceled by its original publisher in 1992 because they thought the computer networking fad would be over before my publication date in late 1993. It wasn't until Wired magazine launched later that year, reframing the emergence of the Internet as a business opportunity, that people with power and money began to take notice. The fluorescent pages of the magazine's first issue announced that a tsunami was coming. The article suggested that only investors who kept track of the scenario planners and futurists on their pages would be able to survive the wave. This wasn't going to be about the psychedelic counterculture, hypertext adventures, or collective consciousness. No, the digital revolution wasn't a revolution at all, but a business opportunity. A chance to pump steroids into the already dying Nasdaq stock exchange, and maybe to milk another couple of decades of growth out of an economy presumed dead since the biotech crash of 1987. Everyone crowded back into the tech sector for the dot-com boom. Internet journalism moved off the culture and media pages of the newspaper and into the business section. Established business interests saw new potentials in the net, but only for the same old extraction they'd always done, while promising young technologists were seduced by unicorn IPOs and multi-million dollar payouts. Digital futures became understood more like stock futures or cotton futures, something to predict and make bets on. Likewise, technology users were treated less as creators to empower than consumers to manipulate. The more predictable the user's behaviors, the more certain the bet. Nearly every speech, article, study, documentary, or white paper on the emerging digital society began to point to a ticker symbol. The future became less a thing we create through our present-day choices or hopes for humankind than a predestined scenario we bet on with our venture capital but arrive at passively. This freed everyone from the moral implications of their activities. Technology development became less the story of collective flourishing than of personal survival through the accumulation of wealth. Worse, as I learned in writing books and articles about such compromises, to call attention to any of this was to unintentionally cast oneself as an enemy of the market or an anti-technology curmudgeon. After all, the growth of technology and that of the market were understood as the same thing, 
inevitable, and even morally desirable. Market sensibilities overpowered much of the media and intellectual space that would have normally been filled by a consideration of the practical ethics of impoverishing the many in the name of the few. Too much mainstream debate centered instead on abstract hypotheticals about our predestined high-tech future. Is it fair for a stock trader to use smart drugs? Should children get implants for foreign languages? Do we want autonomous vehicles to prioritize the lives of pedestrians over those of its passengers? Should the first Mars colonies be run as democracies? Does changing my DNA undermine my identity? Should robots have rights? Asking these sorts of questions, which we still do today, may be philosophically entertaining, but it is a poor substitute for wrestling with the real moral quandaries associated with unbridled technological development in the name of corporate capitalism. Digital platforms have turned an already exploitative and extractive marketplace, think Walmart, into an even more dehumanizing successor, think Amazon. Most of us became aware of these downsides in the form of automated jobs, the gig economy, and the demise of local retail along with local journalism. But the more devastating impacts of pedal-to-the-metal digital capitalism fall on the environment, the global poor, and the civilizational future their oppression portends. The manufacture of our computers and smartphones still depends on networks of slave labor. These practices are deeply entrenched. A company called Fairphone, founded to make and market ethical phones, learned that it was impossible. The company's founder now sadly refers to his products as fairer phones. Meanwhile, the mining of rare earth metals and disposal of our highly digital technologies destroys human habitats, replacing them with toxic waste dumps, which are then picked over by impoverished indigenous children and their families, who sell usable materials back to their manufacturers, who then cynically claim this recycling is part of their larger efforts at environmentalism and social good. This out-of-sight, out-of-mind externalization of poverty and poison doesn't go away just because we've covered our eyes with VR goggles and immersed ourselves in an alternate reality. If anything, the longer we ignore the social, economic, and environmental repercussions, the more of a problem they become. This, in turn, motivates even more withdrawal, more isolationism, and apocalyptic fantasy— and more desperately concocted technologies and business plans. The cycle feeds itself. The more committed we are to this view of the world, the more we come to see other human beings as the problem and technology as a way to control and contain them. We treat the deliciously quirky, unpredictable, and irrational nature of humans less as a feature than a bug. No matter their own embedded biases, technologies are declared neutral. Any bad behaviors they induce in us are just a reflection of our own corrupted core. It's as if some innate, unshakable human savagery is to blame for our troubles. Just as the inefficiency of a local taxi market can be solved with an app that bankrupts human drivers, the vexing inconsistencies of the human psyche can be corrected with a digital or genetic upgrade. Ultimately, 
according to the techno-solutionist orthodoxy, the human future climaxes by uploading our consciousness to a computer or perhaps better, accepting that technology itself is our evolutionary successor. Like members of a Gnostic cult, we long to enter the next transcendent phase of our development, shedding our bodies and leaving them behind, along with our sins and troubles and, most of all, our economic inferiors. Our movies and television fare play out these fantasies for us. Zombie shows depict a post-apocalypse where people are no better than the undead and seem to know it. Worse, these shows invite viewers to imagine the future as a zero-sum battle between the remaining humans, where one group's survival is dependent on another one's demise. Even our most forward-thinking science fiction shows now depict robots as our intellectual and ethical superiors. It's always the humans who are reduced to a few lines of code, and the artificial intelligences who learn to make more complex and willful choices. The mental gymnastics required for such a profound role reversal between humans and machines all depend on the underlying assumption that most humans are essentially worthless and unthinkingly self-destructive. Let's either change them or get away from them forever. Thus, we get tech billionaires launching electric cars into space, as if this symbolizes something more than one billionaire's capacity for corporate promotion. And if a few people do reach escape velocity and somehow survive in a bubble on Mars, despite our inability to maintain such a bubble here on Earth in either of two multi-billion dollar biosphere trials, the result would be less a continuation of the human diaspora than a lifeboat for the elite. Most thinking, breathing human beings understand there is no escape. What I came to realize as I sat sipping imported iceberg water and pondering doomsday scenarios with our society's great winners is that these men are actually the losers. The billionaires who called me out to the desert to evaluate their bunker strategies are not the victors of the economic game so much as the victims of its perversely limited rules. More than anything, they've succumbed to a mindset where winning means earning enough money to insulate themselves from the damage they are creating by earning money in that way. It's as if they want to build a car that goes fast enough to escape from its own exhaust. Yet this Silicon Valley escapism, let's call it the mindset, encourages its adherents to believe that the winners can somehow leave the rest of us behind. Maybe that's been their objective all along. Perhaps this fatalist drive to rise above and separate from humanity is no more the result of runaway digital capitalism than its cause, a way of treating one another in the world that can be traced back to the sociopathic tendencies of empirical science, individualism, sexual domination, and perhaps even progress itself. Yet while tyrants since the time of Pharaoh and Alexander the Great may have sought to sit atop great civilizations and rule them from above, never before have our society's most powerful players assumed that the primary impact of their own conquests would be to render the world itself unlivable for everyone else. Nor have they ever before had the technologies through which to program their sensibilities into the very fabric of our society. 
The landscape is alive with algorithms and intelligences actively encouraging these selfish and isolationist outlooks. Those sociopathic enough to embrace them are rewarded with cash and control over the rest of us. It's a self-reinforcing feedback loop. This is new. Amplified by digital technologies and the unprecedented wealth disparity they afford, the mindset allows for the easy externalization of harm to others and inspires a corresponding longing for transcendence and separation from the people and places that have been abused. As we'll see, the mindset is based in a staunchly atheistic and materialist scientism, a faith in technology to solve problems, an adherence to the biases of digital code, an understanding of human relationships as market phenomena, a fear of nature and women, a need to see one's contributions as utterly unique innovations without precedent, and an urge to neutralize the unknown by dominating and deanimating it. Instead of just lording over us forever, however, the billionaires at the top of these virtual pyramids actively seek the endgame. In fact, like the plot of a Marvel blockbuster, the very structure of the mindset requires an endgame. Everything must resolve to a one or a zero, a winner or loser, the saved or the damned. Actual imminent catastrophes, from the climate emergency to mass migration, support the mythology, offering these would-be superheroes the opportunity to play out the finale in their own lifetimes. For the mindset also includes a faith-based Silicon Valley certainty that they can develop a technology that will somehow break the laws of physics, economics, and morality to offer them something even better than a way of saving the world a means of escape from the apocalypse of their own making. Chapter 1. The Insulation Equation. Billionaire Bunker Strategies. By the time I boarded my return flight to New York, my mind was reeling with the implication of the mindset. Where had it come from? What caused it? What were its main tenets? Who were its true believers? What if anything, could we do to resist it? Before I had even landed, I posted an article about my strange encounter, to surprising effect. Almost immediately, I began receiving inquiries from businesses catering to the billionaire prepper, all hoping I would make some introductions on their behalf to the five men I had written about. I heard from a real estate agent who specializes in disaster-proof listings— a company taking reservations for its third underground dwellings project, and a security firm offering various forms of risk management. But the message that got my attention came from a former president of the American Chamber of Commerce in Latvia. J.C. Cole had witnessed the fall of the Soviet empire as well as what it took to rebuild a working society almost from scratch. He had also served as landlord for the American and European Union embassies and learned a whole lot about security systems and evacuation plans. You certainly stirred up a bee's nest, he began his first email to me. I find it quite accurate. The wealthy hiding in their bunkers will have a problem with their security teams. I believe you are correct with your advice to treat those people really well right now, but also the concept may be expanded, and I believe there is a better system that would give much better results. 
he proceeded to lay out the facts. He felt certain that the event, a gray swan or predictable catastrophe triggered by our enemies, Mother Nature, or just by accident, was inevitable. He had done a SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats on the situation, and concluded that preparing for calamity requires us to take the very same measures as trying to prevent one. By coincidence, he explained, I am setting up a series of safe haven farms in the New York City area. These are designed to best handle an event and also benefit society as semi-organic farms, both within three hours' drive from the city, close enough to get there when it happens. I couldn't resist. Here was a prepper with security clearance, field experience, and food sustainability expertise. He believed the best way to cope with the impending disaster was to change the way we treat one another, the economy, and the planet right now, while also developing a network of secret, totally self-sufficient residential farm communities for millionaires guarded by Navy SEALs armed to the teeth. J.C. is currently developing two farms as part of his Safe Haven project. Farm 1, outside Princeton, is his show model and works well as long as the thin blue line is working. The second one, somewhere in the Poconos, has to remain secret. The fewer people who know the locations, the better, he explained, along with a link to the Twilight Zone episode where panicked neighbors break into a family's bomb shelter during a nuclear scare. The primary value of Safe Haven is operational security, nicknamed OPSEC by the military. If, when the supply chain breaks, the people will have no food delivered. COVID-19 gave us the wake-up call as people started fighting over TP. When it comes to a shortage of food, it will be vicious. This is why those intelligent enough to invest have to be stealth. J.C. offered to come into New York to show me his proposal, but I wanted to see the real thing. He was delighted and invited me down to New Jersey. Wear boots, he said. The ground is still wet. Then he asked, do you shoot? The farm itself was serving as an equestrian center and tactical training facility, in addition to raising goats and chickens. J.C. showed me how to hold and shoot a Glock at a series of outdoor targets shaped like bad guys, while he grumbled about the way Senator Dianne Feinstein had arbitrarily limited the number of rounds one could legally fit in a magazine for the handgun. J.C. knew his stuff. I asked him about various combat scenarios. How does one defend against a whole gang of thugs invading one's farm? You don't, he said. The bottom line of prepping is to get away. Of course, if you have a compound like the one J.C. was building, things are a little different. The only way to protect your family is with a group, he said. That's really the whole point of his project, to gather a team capable of sheltering in place for a year or more, while also defending itself from those who haven't prepared. The SWAT team of a city police force have visited here. They all said they'd be here at the first sign of trouble. J.C. is also hoping to train young farmers in sustainable agriculture and to secure at least one doctor and dentist for each location. We had to finish shooting before a teenager arrived to practice jumping with her horse. On the way back to the main building, J.C. showed me the layered security protocols he had learned designing embassy properties. A fence around the whole place, no trespassing signs, guard dogs, surveillance cameras, all disincentives meant to prevent a violent confrontation. 
He paused for a minute as he stared down the drive. Honestly, I'm less concerned about gangs with guns than the woman at the end of the driveway holding a baby and asking for food. He paused and sighed, I don't want to be in that moral dilemma. That's why J.C.'s real passion isn't just to build a few isolated, militarized retreat facilities for millionaires, but to prototype locally owned sustainable farms that can be modeled by others and ultimately help restore regional food security in America. The just-in-time delivery system preferred by agricultural conglomerates renders most of the nation vulnerable to a crisis as minor as a power outage or a transportation shutdown. Meanwhile, the centralization of the agricultural industry has left most farms utterly dependent on the same long supply chains as urban consumers. Most egg farmers can't even raise chickens, J.C. explained as he showed me his hen houses. They buy chicks. I've got roosters. J.C. is no hippie environmentalist. He refers to Hillary Clinton only as her and publishes pieces online about America's deep state misadventures in the coming oil wars. But his business model is based in the same communitarian spirit I tried to convey to the billionaires. The way to keep the hungry hordes from storming the gates is by getting them food security now. So for $3 million, investors not only get a maximum security compound in which to ride out the coming plague, solar storm, or electric grid collapse, they also get a stake in a potentially profitable network of local farm franchises that could reduce the probability of a catastrophic event in the first place. His business would do its best to ensure that there are as few hungry children at the gate as possible when the time comes to lock down. So far, J.C. Cole has been unable to convince anyone to invest in American heritage farms. That doesn't mean no one is investing in such schemes. It's just that the ones that attract more attention and cash don't generally have these cooperative components. They're more for people who want to go it alone. Most billionaire preppers don't want to have to learn to get along with a community of farmers or worse, spend their winnings funding a national food resilience program. The mindset that requires safe havens is less concerned with preventing moral dilemmas than simply keeping them out of sight. Most of those seriously seeking a safe haven simply hire one of several prepper construction companies to bury a prefab steel-lined bunker somewhere on one of their existing properties. Rising S Company out of Texas builds and installs bunkers and tornado shelters for as little as $40,000 for an 8-by-12-foot emergency hideout, all the way up to the $8.3 million luxury series Aristocrat, complete with pool and bowling lane. While they've got photos of the lower-priced models on their website, the larger ones are depicted in virtual walkthroughs, likely because not many, if any, are actually being constructed on that scale. These are pretty Spartan facilities anyway, more like repurposed shipping containers than James Bond-level fantasy hideouts. The enterprise originally catered to families seeking temporary storm shelters before it went into the long-term apocalypse business. The company logo, complete with three crucifixes, suggests their services are geared more toward Christian evangelist preppers in red state America than billionaire tech bros playing out sci-fi scenarios. 
there's something much more whimsical about the facilities in which most of the billionaires, or more accurately, aspiring billionaires, actually invest. A company called Vivos is selling luxury underground apartments in converted Cold War munitions storage facilities, missile silos, and other fortified locations around the world. Like miniature club med resorts, they offer private suites for individuals or families and larger common areas with pools, games, movies, and dining. Ultra-elite shelters like the Opidum in the Czech Republic claim to cater to the billionaire class and pay more attention to the long-term psychological health of residents. They provide imitation of natural light, such as a pool with a simulated garden area, a wine vault, and other amenities to make the wealthy feel more at home. On closer analysis, however, the probability of a fortified bunker actually protecting its occupants from the reality of, well, reality, is very slim. For one, the closed ecosystems of underground facilities are preposterously brittle. The diversity found in genuine, real-world biomes cushions them and their inhabitants from catastrophe. In nature, a disease, drought, or invader may threaten one species, yet be successfully mitigated by another. An indoor-sealed hydroponic garden is vulnerable to contamination. Vertical farms with moisture sensors and computer-controlled irrigation systems look great in business plans and on rooftops of Bay Area startups. When a pallet of topsoil or a row of crops goes wrong, it can simply be pulled and replaced. The hermetically sealed apocalypse grow room doesn't allow for such do-overs. Just the known unknowns are enough to dash any reasonable hope of survival. But this doesn't seem to stop wealthy preppers from trying. The New York Times reported that real estate agents specializing in private islands were overwhelmed with inquiries during the COVID-19 pandemic. Prospective clients were even asking about whether there was enough land to do some agriculture in addition to installing a helicopter landing pad. But while a private island may be a good place to wait out a temporary plague, turning it into a self-sufficient, defensible ocean fortress is harder than it sounds. Small islands are utterly dependent on air and sea deliveries for basic staples. Solar panels and water filtration equipment need to be replaced and serviced at regular intervals. The billionaires who reside in such locales are more, not less, dependent on complex supply chains than those of us embedded in industrial civilization. Not that the environment is truly sealed anyway. Everything gets everywhere. Toxic clouds, plague, and radiation have a way of spreading and seeping through the most well-thought-out barricades. HEPA filters need to be regularly replaced, and sometimes fail even when they are. Air pollution from factories in China and forest fires in Europe and California already travels to distant continents, measurably contaminating Everest and Kathmandu. Cancer-causing microplastics are as plentiful in the polar ice as they are in a typical European town. The average American already consumes about a credit card worth of plastic a month, according to a worldwide Fund for Nature study. Just read the news. There is no escape. Surely the billionaires who brought me out for advice on their exit strategies were aware of these limitations. 
Could it have all been some sort of game? Five men sitting around a poker table, each wagering his escape plan was the best? Was I supposed to be playing the part of the neutral dealer? Or the fantasy role-playing game master, meeting out judgment on each of the scenarios they described? Still, there was something more going on here as well. If they were in it just for fun, they wouldn't have called for me. They would have flown out the author of a zombie apocalypse comic book. If they wanted to water test their bunker plans, they'd have hired a security expert from Blackwater or the Pentagon. They seemed to want something more. Their language went far beyond questions of disaster preparedness and verged into politics and philosophy. Words like individuality, sovereignty, governance, and autonomy. That's because it wasn't their actual bunker strategies I'd been brought out to evaluate, so much as the philosophy and mathematics they were using to justify their commitment to escape. They were working out what I've come to call the insulation equation. Could they earn enough money to insulate themselves from the reality they were creating by earning money in this way? Was there any valid justification for striving to be so successful that they could simply leave the rest of us behind, apocalypse or not? As holders of the mindset, they've been rejecting the collective polity all along and embracing the hubristic notion that with enough money and technology, the world can be redesigned to one's personal specifications. Their various self-sovereignty escape initiatives amount to the same techno-libertarian world-building fantasy exemplified by the ultra-billionaire's competition to colonize Mars, but designed for implementation right here on Earth. Only trillionaires will actually make it into space to terraform planets anyway. The cohort who solicited my doomsday advice readily admitted they were low-level billionaires who could at best hitch a ride with Elon Musk, Richard Branson, or Jeff Bezos, who are themselves at least a few generations away from colonizing anything. Offering a slightly more reasonable techno-utopian escape fantasy, the seasteading movement publicized in a flurry of magazine stories a few years ago, promises a sustainable solution to a world of climate catastrophe, social chaos, and economic collapse. In the Minecraft meets Waterworld future envisioned by aquapreneurs, wealthy people are to live in independent, free-floating city-states, giant clusters of high-tech rafts using clean, renewable ocean thermal energy to power themselves and escape from a civilization of oil-drilling land-dwellers. The hype around these initiatives may have died down, but several billionaires and even some legitimate organizations, including the United Nations and MIT, are still hard at work on humanity's return to the sea. Proponents of seasteading seem to start every conversation with the promise of sustainability, environmentalism, or insulation from risks like COVID or climate chaos. Why fear rising oceans if you're already living on the ocean? Eventually, however, they always get to more ideological motivations for leaving terra firma behind. The mission statement of the Seasteading Institute puts it plainly to establish permanent, autonomous ocean communities to enable experimentation and innovation with diverse social, political, and legal systems. 
the tech entrepreneurs investing in these ocean schemes seek to retrieve the Wild West free-for-all associated with the early Internet. It has little to do with the water and everything to do with political autonomy. Freedom to live ruled only by the mindset. Unfettered and unregulated by the backwards thinking of nation-states, aquapreneurs will be free to reimagine civilization as an ultra-libertarian experiment. They will rapidly prototype new forms of government and determine what, if any, nods to civics or collectivism are even necessary. As the Seasteading Institute website explains, we've had the agricultural revolution, the commercial and industrial revolutions, but why not a governance revolution? Enter the sea. The ocean will be the means to an end, a way of redefining one's sovereignty from the bottom up, being always absolutely in charge of one's personal allegiance, expression of values, and obligation to the law. It's a vision for something like a global unconference, where each individual or family builds or buys their own high-tech floating villa or nano-nation, and then floats to whichever modular cluster nation offers the best system of government. If you stop liking the way the government is operating, you simply disconnect and propel yourself to another cluster somewhere else in the ocean. In a free market free-for-all, startup societies will compete for inhabitants, much like social networks compete for users or Burning Man camps compete for visitors. Moreover, free of national regulations, aquapreneurs will be able to develop technologies and make scientific breakthroughs impossible in countries imposing legal or moral restrictions on genetic engineering, cloning, or nanotechnology. Shrouded in the urgency of environmentalism and the optimism of technology innovation, self-sovereignty fantasies like this betray the underlying urge among the techno-libertarian elite to stop submitting to congressional inquiries, anti-monopoly regulations, or regressive technophobia, and to take their ball and go play elsewhere. Whether on land, on sea, or in outer space, the quest for self-sovereignty is less important as an example of apocalypse preparedness than it is an expose of the underlying Ayn Rand fantasies of the tech elite. The most rational and productive among us escape to pursue their self-interests, empowered to build an independent economy of their own, free from the moral consequences of their actions. Thanks for listening. That was the introduction and first chapter of my new book, Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. I hope you liked it. I hope you liked it enough to want to hear the rest of it. It gets crazier and funnier as it goes. All right, take care and see you next week.